0: If you're just bringing home the same amount of money that you would earn working someplace else doing the same work, then you don't own a business. It's called a job. You own a <laughs> job. And if you bring home less than you'd be paid to do it somewhere else, then it's that H word you just used. It's a hobby.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, You've got to reduce it. And I bet you're exposed to investment risk right now. To reduce it, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and download the risk reduction checklist I've made specifically for you, my podcast listener, based on the lessons that I've learned from all of my guests. Well, fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott from A. Stott's Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, David Barnett. David, are you ready to rock?
0: Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? I I, am yes, awesome. I'm ready to rock.
1: Yeah, this is exciting because we're going we're gonna to do something a little bit different for the audience out there. Get ready. But let me introduce you to the audience before we get started. So, ladies and gentlemen, David Barnett loves to say that it took him 10 years to unlearn what he what's taught in business school. University had trained him to be a middle manager in big enterprises. He was totally unprepared for the realities of small business. (laughs) And I know that, I know that pain. After a career in advertising sales, David started several businesses, including a commercial debt brokerage. Helping to finance small and medium-sized businesses led to the field of business brokerage, meaning the selling, buying and selling of businesses. Hmm. Over several years, he sold dozens of businesses for others while also managing his own portfolio of income properties and starting his career as a local private investor. David regularly consults with professionals and banks on businesses and asset values. Presently, he works as a private transaction advisor with people around the world who are buying or selling a business. But ladies and gentlemen, that's not all. The reason why we're here today is to talk about David's book, 21 Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business. And in this book, you can learn how to avoid those awful novice mistakes. You can find him at davidcbarnett.com. David, take a minute and fill you for tidbits about your life.
0: Well, I think you did a pretty good job covering things off right there. I I mean, basically, Andrew, I, I spend my time helping to teach people about how you actually do a transaction to buy or sell a business. And then people who are looking for that information, who are contemplating doing an actual deal, some of them decided to reach out and hire me to consult on their deals to make sure they're not making a mistake. It could be one of these 21 stupid mistakes, or it could be you know, a mistake that's very rare and hard to see, but maybe I've seen before and I can help someone avoid something bad.
1: Mm. And that's the key to the podcast is helping our listeners avoid mistakes and mistakes can be very expensive. And before we get into that, just a question, why would someone buy a business? I mean, all of my youth, I always thought I want to start a business, my own thing. I never even thought about the idea of buying a business until I started to grow up. So just for the (laughs) listeners out there that are thinking, I'm going to make my own business and all that. Tell us the benefits of buying business.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, you know, when you start a business, typically you have no sales, but you have expenses and maybe you even have overheads. And so you get into a race to develop enough clients and get to make enough sales to reach that theoretical point in time called the break even point and then once you get past break even you, know, well, you still really haven't made money because now you're just you know recovering the losses you suffered in order to get to break even and so when people get to be an adult or of a certain age they realize hey you know what i've got children i've got you know a spouse i've got a mortgage i've got all these things can i really be gambling on starting something new. And we know the stats about new businesses, a vast majority of them end up failing within a couple of years. And so, the less risky move for people that want to get into business is to simply buy one that already has customers and profits. It's a bigger investment upfront, but you're making money from that first day. And because there's already an established cash flow there, there's other resources you can bring to bear to buy the business, such as borrowing from banks, etc to a far greater degree than if you were going to try to borrow to start a business which usually involves some sort of government guarantee, you know, depending on what country you're in, in order for a bank to be willing to lend to something that's entirely new.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, what we're talking about is creating a cash flow with the coffee business that I have in Thailand with my best friend Dale. I always say that, you know, ultimately what we're creating is a cash machine. And that's the way we have to look at every business that we're doing is if we're not creating a cash flow stream from it, you know, we're what are we doing? We're just a hobby or are we messing around? And so, you know, first of all, all of us actually are trying to create cash flow streams. How do we do it? Well, one way to do it is just get a job. And you have now created a cash flow stream. And what you do with that cash flow stream, you know, spend it on all the different things you spend it on, but a salary is a cash flow stream. When you start a business from scratch, I think the main point is that you're taking on a huge amount of risk. And so, yeah, it's, it's a low cost to get into it in some way, you could say, but that's because the risk is so amazingly high. Whereas the upfront cost, as you've just described to the listeners out there, of getting into an established business is higher, but it's also mean that you've de-risked it quite considerably. So I think that really you know helps for all of us to think about it. I guess the last question related to that is that I think when, when a person listening to this podcast thinks, yeah, I could buy a business, but it's going to take a huge amount of money. And in fact, I was just in a deal yesterday, and the business that we were looking at buying in this case was struggling. And so it didn't even have a cash flow that we could go to the bank and say, hey, look, you have the cash flow. But I think traditionally, you're probably talking about not a turnaround situation, but you're talking about maybe an existing cash flow. If a company has an existing cash flow, it's expensive for you to buy, but you mentioned about like bank financing or whatever type of thing, just to help someone get over that hurdle of, wait a minute, it's going to take me a lot of money to buy a business.
0: Well, well, actually let's talk about that because in the book, 21 Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business, the very first one is failing to understand how businesses are valued. So you talked about creating a cash flow and what a lot of small business Owners or potential sellers and and many buyers don't understand is that it's not really the business that's being bought or sold. It's the cash flow. (laughs) And so, you know, you deal in investments, right? And so, if you have something like a government bond, for example, with a certain you know interest coupon on it, you use that coupon to determine what someone's willing to pay for that bond based on what you need for a rate of return. Yep, it's kind of the same thing with a business, except we're not dealing with. You know, a sovereign bond issuer, we're dealing with a very risky small business. Mm. And so what we need as far as a return is based on that risk. And, and you know, in and I'll tell you in a nutshell how businesses are valued, no one's really going to be able to apply it with what I'm going to say. But mm. here's conceptually what we do is we say, what is the cash flow that this business is generating? And as a buyer, what am I willing to pay for that cash flow? given my belief in my ability to maintain it under my own stewardship, because what makes small businesses so radically different from publicly traded companies is when I buy shares in Coca-Cola, I also get the advantage of, for example, of all the managers, leaders, et cetera, that are in that business. And when I maybe sell those shares to you, Andrew, you know, all that leadership remains. But when we talk about small businesses, typically the seller is the concentrated leadership human resource you know person that is running the thing they're the brains of the operation and they're making a lot of the big decisions and they are going to exit upon the transaction and we're going to step into their shoes mm-hmm. and so this is what makes the cash flow valued at a much lower price than if you were for example valuing something like publicly traded stock
1: so many things to talk about, but just repeat number one. Like just, just repeat the number one, and then we're going to go through these. But I have some some points on that. So say it again.
0: Yeah, number one is failing failing to understand how businesses are valued, and I've seen so many people yep. get stuck in so many different traps. And I'll I'll give you one quick yep. tidbit. Okay, so here's one that many people fall into it over and over again: is buy my business. It's only two years old. It cost me a million dollars to build, but I'm ready to sell it to you for 600 grand, right? And so there are many people out there who will be confused. Like if you said that about a house, Mm. you might be describing a good deal, right? But if the person has failed to create a necessary cash flow to make the business worth a million or even 600,000, then it's not even worth 600,000. That business owner has suffered a loss by making the investment But because there's no pricing mechanism, like if I bought shares in the telephone company for a hundred bucks and it went down to 80 on the market, I know I lost money, right? What happens in small businesses, there's no instantaneous pricing mechanism. People don't know they've made a loss until they turn around and try to sell it. And they realize no one wants to pay for my cash flow what I need to get out of it.
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that it, when you bring up the comparison of Coke and a private company, there's something interesting that you you left out when you talked about a private company when you buy coke you're buying two things just like any listed company in particular you're buying the existing cash flow so you're saying cuz you said maintain that cash flow you're buying the existing maintenance of the cash flow and then you're buying growth in that cash flow and the Good growth point. in that yeah the growth in that cash flow is a function of that management team investing in improving the marketing, improving the product, improving the distribution, all those things. So let's just say that the long-term growth of a, of a company could be, let's just say 10% as an example. It could be that you know 5% is just, you know there's, there's this maintenance revenue or let's say maintenance profit that's coming in. Let's just say it's a $10 million a year. If you wanna go from 10 million to 15 million, there's an investment needed to do that. Now, what you've said about valuing a small business is, you know, looking at, you know, what you could put into it to maintain that. And I think the important thing is that growth is not assumed. Number one, like maintenance is, is most important. The second thing that's most important in a transaction is that the seller does not have any rights to that future growth. So you want to go into that transaction saying, I'm just maintaining what you've got. And if- yeah. So anyway, what, your what you're what
0: you're describing, Andrew, is what we call the blue sky trap. So you will often see someone trying to sell a business where they will talk about these great potential opportunities that exist for the new owner. And this will become a reason why the business is worth maybe more than what the cash flow might indicate. And what I constantly advise buyers to do. Is to look for those opportunities for growth because these are the reasons why you might want to buy that business. If mm. you know there could legitimately be an opportunity, but you're not going to pay the seller for it because you're the one that has to do the work to deliver the result. Yeah. And there have been many instances where I've talked with sellers and I've, and they've talked about these opportunities, and I said, great, take two years, exploit the opportunity, come back mm. with a higher cash flow, and we'll yep. be able to sell it for more.
1: Yep. It's <laughs> a it's a great one when uh, I was asked to advise a company here to help sell it. And in this case, we were selling it to a software giant in America, and the software was developed here in Thailand. And the software giant came in with, a, with an offer at 50 million US. And basically, I was hired at that point to get that up. They said, We want 100 million. And so I said, All right, let me work on this. So I looked, I did a lot of work on the business, understanding it, building out the cash flows, saying, what is, What's the potential of what we could create? And then I went back. On my first meeting with the negotiating team from the big software company in the US, they introduced me and I said, so I've done my work on this company and uh, our starting price is 200 million. And of course, jaws dropped. There was, you know, a lot of anger and frustration when, you know, that doesn't bother me. And then they wanted to get on the call with me to go through it. And I went through it with them and said, well, we're going to hire a sales team and then we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And we're going to do that. And, you know, we're going to grow it up and this is going to be worth 200 million. And I said, and in your case, you know, you guys are going to buy it. I mean, you can take this to a billion easy. I should be charging you, you know, more. He's like, hold on. That's <laughs> our, that's our value that we're going to create. I was like, okay, that's fair. And so we ended right. up negotiating into, we got to 85 million. So that was, that was a fair one. But the point is, is that, you know, there is future growth potential in a company. You know, not all, there are some companies that's like, it's a donut shop and you're not going to expand 50 donut shops and it does a good steady income. But for most businesses, there's a growth potential. And really, you can say it's, it's a negotiation between the buyer and the seller on that, I would say. Would you agree with that? Or?
0: Well, there's a negotiation between a buyer and a seller, but there are also a whole constellation of other people that are part of the negotiation too. So one of the one thing that sometimes happens is if a seller doesn't really understand where the price comes from and they bump into an equally naive buyer you could actually get a contract signed for a price that's far too high. Mm. This deal will never get done because eventually that buyer is going to get in front of a banker or an accountant or someone else who's going to be working on this with them who will show them that they'll never be able to pay the loan or what have you. The, the real danger though, of course, is for individuals that actually happen to have the money. You know, They could write a check for far too much money and, and end up in a bad spot. But when I'm talking with sellers, one of the things I, I caution sellers against is not to ask for an unreasonable price because what happens then is you scare off the reasonable buyer. Mm-hmm. Reasonable buyers have good credit. They have industry experience. They have money to make a down payment. They've already done research. They know what businesses in a particular industry of a certain size should be trading at. And if they see that that seller is kind of out to lunch, they're going to say, it doesn't make sense for me to talk to that person. And there's, a lot of, and
1: there's a lot more reasonable buyers than unreasonable. So if you're turning them off, you're turning really... The group are. All right. What's number two? My goodness, already right. so much value in number one.
0: So, number two is failing to account for the value of the buyer's labor. So, here's one of the things about small companies, small businesses, is that they are often presented with a cash flow figure that is called seller's discretionary earnings. So, you, you go back to it, it's basically all the money available to an owner operator that works full time. So, it's EBITDA plus wages of the manager. Okay. And so people will look at that money, that cash flow figure, and they'll say, Ooh, if I buy this business, I get all that money. Mm-hmm. However, they also have to work 40 hours a week to get all that money. And in the real world, Andrew, people do pay for interest and taxes, and there's a real cost to replacing stuff, yep. which is represented with depreciation and amortization. Sometimes the depreciation on the financial statements doesn't really bear any. It doesn't really anchor to reality very well in a small business. There's all kinds of places where people accelerate depreciation and all this kind of stuff. But we need to consider what money do we need for our time that we're working in this business? What do we estimate we're going to have as far as a tax obligation? What debt service do we have to undertake with this cash flow? And what reasonable amount of money do we have to hold in reserve for capital expenditures to replace equipment and gear? And so, I see constantly time and time again is people will be very optimistic about that cash flow and they will not put a high enough price on their own time when they're examining one of these businesses.
1: So much so much there. I have two points that I would make and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. The first thing is that I know being a financial analyst all my life we have all kinds of the acronyms and you know EBITDA is one of them. But truthfully I care about net profit because the reason why I care about net profit is that ultimately I'm trying to understand what is available to shareholders after everything. You know, and we look at the earnings per share and how much can be paid out because ultimately most businesses are just a hobby. We've got to create a business that produces a dividend. That's my goal. So first thing is I understand all the other metrics and I use them, but I really Like net profit because it just gets down to the bottom line. The second thing is that sometimes I'll talk to startups and others about, you know, they want to sell their business in a couple of years or whatever. And what would be my number one advice to increase the value since my focus is on valuation? I say the first thing that you could do today to increase the value of your business is double your salary and the salaries of all your staff.
0: Well, you want to get them to fair market wages because. And I run into this all the time too, Andrew, where people will underpay themselves because they can make that choice if they own the yep. business, they could choose to do that. And they think that they're magnifying the bottom line, and this will add value to the business. But the very first thing that a buyer does is normalize the for the fair market value of, of labor that's going on in the business. It doesn't fool anyone. Yep. And so, you know, if you're going to work full-time as a you know software developer or even just as the manager of the restaurant. You should pay yourself what you would be paid if you did that for somebody else. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do, I talk, I, I don't like the word business necessarily because I, I find it's too general. I like to say that if, a, if you have some kind of economic entity going on and you're able to earn an amount of money in excess of what you would be paid to do that work in another business, then you have a business. If you're just bringing home the same amount of money that you would earn working someplace else doing the same work, then you don't own a business. It's called a job. You (laughs) own a job. And if you bring home less than you'd be paid to do it somewhere else, then it's that H word you just used. It's a hobby. Yep.
1: Yep. All right. Number three. Now, we're not going to be able to get through all of these, but ladies and gentlemen, just go to Amazon, go to the show notes, just type in 21 stupid things. And before you know it, you're going to get all of them. So what do you got?
0: So The next one, number three, is failing to account for the value of capital. So, I just described that out of that seller's discretionary earnings cash flow level, I tell people they need to bring home money for themselves. They need to pay debt service. They need to pay taxes. They need to account for any kind of equipment or material that needs to be replaced. The thing that people always forget is they need a return on the cash to put in the deal. Like, it's amazing how people will budget for the bank's earnings called Mm. the interest rate. You know, they're going to pay the bank. But if they put money that they've saved up over years or decades into this acquisition, they need to get an adequate rate of return on that equity they've put in. You mean the return
1: is not the salary that I'm taking out of the business?
0: No, 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 no. The salary is for your labor, right? Mm. And so, this is how businesses end up getting overpriced. Is when people look at a business broker, for example, will try to add back every kind of adjustment they can to grow that seller's discretionary earnings to as big a number as they can, and they'll put some kind of multiplier on it and they'll try to justify it to a buyer. So buyers have to be smart enough to take apart all of their needs out of that number to really see what it is that they're buying over and above what their other alternative is which is maybe to go work somewhere and keep their money in the bank mm. or invest it in simply other place right
1: so i'm going to come back to the net profit and you know as an analyst we look at free cash flow as an example free cash flow to the firm and all that but as i say in my valuation masterclass i say you know free cash flow is a theoretical number based upon lots of estimates, and it's possibly what the company could pay out in dividends. And if everything's right, yes, it can. But the reality is, is that that net profit is is the most real number that, you know, from my perspective, I can get dividend out of that. And I think that dividend, I know, is the ultimate return. It is the only, and I think this is an important part for people that don't understand business or finance that well, is that there's really three ways to get money out of a business. One, pay yourself a salary or some type of compensation. Two, embezzle. There's many there's many people that pad payments and they get you know there's all kinds of crap that goes on that's illegally siphoning money out of a business, which I choose not to do and I recommend people don't do. And then the third way that a, that an investor can get money out of a business, and the only way that an investor alone can get money out of a business is dividend. And a great example of this is Dale, my business partner, who is the, the managing director of CoffeeWorks. And me, I'm a shareholder. We're both equal shareholders. There's zero opportunity for me to take any money out of the company as a salaried employee or in any other way like that. But he could do a lot of sneaky, tricky things. that could get money into his account. Luckily, he doesn't, you know, and we've got trust. But the point is for a shareholder, <laughs> that dividend is all you got.
0: Great points. You know, and I'd like to point out something else about that second one you mentioned embezzlement. Mm. Because the reason why, in the world of small business, we use that seller's discretionary earnings cash flow level is for just that reason. And it has to do with the way that a lot of small business people will manage their personal benefit from owning the business. So when people think of the the word embezzlement they think about somebody sneaking off with, you know, mm. envelopes full of cash and stuff like that. But the actual way that it looks when it's done in, you know, day-to-day experience is that you've got this company that has a cell phone plan and the owner's teenage daughter has a company cell phone, right? Or the owner's spouse is filling their vehicle with fuel using a company gas card. And so all of these little perks start to percolate within the business. And then the goal of this, of course, is to reduce the net income so they pay a lower tax burden. Mm. But then when they want to sell the business, then they want to add back all these things and push Mm. you the true net benefit. And this really bites a lot of sellers in the butt. And here's the biggest thing that happens is when they do this very aggressively, Andrew, they end up with tax returns that have no profits. And so they may personally be enjoying a very great lifestyle from everything that the business is providing to them. But when the potential buyer shows those tax returns and financial statements to a bank, they're not getting a loan. Yep. And so they actually, the seller will undermine the buyer's ability to purchase the business by doing that kind of thing.
1: So I guess mom was right. Honesty is the best policy. Yeah, right, next. if you want to
0: get paid and have a buyer that can borrow money. <laughs> it's
1: true. Yeah. Well, I think if you're selling a business and you can assure the people that there really is no bombs that are going to go off when they buy it, you know, valuable. That's valuable. All right, next.
0: All right. Number four is overcommitting projected free cash flow to debt service. <laughs> which I think you just mentioned about, right? Yeah. Yep. So so here's the trap is that businesses are asymmetric systems. And so what that can mean is that a depending on you know the cost of goods sold and the fixed overheads of the business, you can have a business in which a 10% decline in revenue could be a 35% decline in profit, mm. right? And so on the upside, a 10% increase in sales can be a 30% increase in profit. And everyone likes to look at the upside. Right. And the reason people want to get into an operating business over, say, buying a piece of investment real estate is that there's greater potential to leverage up and grow profits if you can grow revenue. Mm. And so when people go into this stuff, I always make the case for looking at realistic downside scenarios. I've, Andrew, I mean, I've been looking at small business financial statements for decades. Mm. And I can tell you when you lay five years out and they bump around by eight or 10% a year up and down, that's actually called flat because that's just normal for a mm-hmm. lot of these types of businesses, yep. especially if it's an industry that might be driven by like big project work of some mm-hmm. kind. You know, you can have these, these great years and then you have a dry year, right? And so when people look at that seller's discretionary earnings and they read somewhere that a debt service coverage ratio of 1.25 is adequate, then the very first thing I ask them is, well, did you figure what you need to take home? Getting back to point number point number one but i say that's crazy 1.25 debt service coverage ratio to me is for a small apartment block mm-hmm. which has you know may have some vacancies in the year but it's not going to be 100% empty you know at any given point point. and so my rule of thumb is you want a much greater debt service coverage ratio because the last thing you want is a cash crunch that bleeds out your free money and you know i mean you you've probably seen this before yep. right
1: mm-hmm. So a couple of things about that. First of all, what what you're talking about in the technical world of finance, we call operating leverage. And that is imagine that we have a small, we have two businesses. Or let's just look at one. One business, five employees, and they have a huge rent payment. And if the revenue goes up, hey, no problem. You know, it's just same rent. But if that revenue goes down, oh, no problem, same rent. All of a sudden mm-hmm. the operating, the impact on the profit can be massively negative compare that to a company that let's say outsources most of their business to outsourcers like we do these days with the delivery services and stuff and as soon as the revenue goes down those costs go down those are variable costs so it's the relationship between fixed and variable number one that helps us understand what's going to happen to that business when and it's simple enough to just look at a business's change in revenue and change in let's say profit or EBITDA or something like that so that's the first part The second part is that for for the audience out there that doesn't understand free cash flow, let me just explain that there's three components in my, my description of free cash flow that I talk about. There's three components. The first one is what you could call core profitability. And the second one is investment in working capital. And the third one is investment in CapEx, meaning capital expenditures, fixed assets. And so basically those three things come together. The core profitability is a positive number and the investment in inventory or let's say accounts receivable, these are networking capital items. And then there's the CapEx. So a good story for my own business in Coffee Works. when we set up the business, we bought this huge piece of equipment to do the roasting many years ago. And then what we kind of forgot about was that, oh yeah, we still need to buy inventory and we still need to give our customers credit. And all of a sudden we realized, holy crap working capital. And and we didn't get credit from our suppliers. So we had to finance inventory and accounts receivable. And what we realized was that working capital is an investment. And so now I just look at really two items. What's the core profitability and what's the level of investment? And remember that that investment number that you're going to forecast is your assumption of what's going to be required to either maintain or grow the business.
0: Hmm. Did you read this book? Because item number five is failing to adjust for operating capital. And (laughs) so for everyone listening, you know, we, we talked about that cash flow and then we multiply it by some number and it's different by industry and size of business. And, you know, there's research that can be done. There's databases available for even these very small, small businesses of what they've sold for. So an unsophisticated seller or business broker will do is they'll determine that cash flow, that seller's discretionary earnings, they'll figure out a number and they'll multiply it. And they'll say, this is what the assets of the business are worth. And they'll present it as an asset sale where the seller keeps cash receivables and takes care of his payables. Mm. And it's a very simplistic understanding of a business because that when we multiply cash flow by that number, whatever it is, we get something called the enterprise value. And the enterprise value is inclusive of something called the net normal position in working capital. And so small business owners, you know, a lot of them are expert at what they're doing, you know, for example, roasting coffee or what have mm-hmm. you, but they're not finance professionals. And one of the things that is pretty consistent in every business I look at is it doesn't have an optimized balance sheet. So a really profitable business over time, they'll pay off all their debts. And then they suffer a lower return on equity because they've got a ton of equity, right? But their goal has always been to maximize profit, which means not paying interest, right? Mm -hmm. So when we look at a business like that, we have to normalize the balance sheet. We have to say, look, what would be normal in this business? Some kind of line of credit that might support receivables and inventory. If it's a fungible inventory, you know, what kinds of inventory are financeable, many are, many aren't, right? And so we we look at normalizing it and we say, under normal conditions for a business like this, what kind of cash does the owner of the business have to have to grease the wheels of this machine and make it go? Hmm. That net normal position in working capital is just as critical as the forklift that unloads the goods off the truck. And it's part of what the buyer's buying when they buy this business. And so, Andrew, I probably met 200 people who didn't understand this and overpaid for a business by the amount of the net position in working capital. Yep. (laughs) Looks like you have a prop there.
1: (laughs) Yes, I just grabbed a prop off my shelf. But before I do, I think as far as going through the 21, those top five are already golden value. And I just want to tell the listeners out there, Just go, you can come to the show notes and click on the links. You can go directly to Amazon and just type in 21 stupid things people do. But the point is, is that there's a lot of, a lot of knowledge here from David. And also you can go to his website, davidcbarnett.com and sign up for, you know, his email, his newsletter and and see his blog. But also I just, it's kind of, it's interesting because I wrote a book called Nine Valuation Mistakes and How to Avoid Them, which I also have. On Amazon, and I'm I'm approaching it from a little bit different as an as an analyst. Okay. Although I'm a business owner, I've spent my time as an analyst looking at you know thousands of companies, and then I've spent thirty years teaching finance and teaching valuation. So I have the benefit of, and then I have the valuation masterclass where I'm watching my students do valuation, and I came up with uh, with nine mistakes that people make. But you know, I look through it and I just look at. Mistake number six is underestimating working capital investment, you know? And so we're, we're talking about so many of the same things that, you know, just very common. In fact, I wrote a course called Finance Made Ridiculously Simple because I wanted to help people really start to understand their balance sheet, their income statement ratios and that type of thing. So I think I want to wrap up by asking you, instead of asking you kind of my traditional questions, I want to ask you, the question I often ask at the end of my interviews is what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? We're talking about making a mistake. But I think in this case, maybe a good way to say, "For what is your one piece of advice? One, for a seller and your one piece of advice for a buyer. Let's say there's two people listening to this. Someone wants to sell in the next year, or two or three or whatever. And someone wants to now you know, buy a business. What would be your one piece of advice for each of these people?
0: So my one piece of advice for someone who is going to sell is to really do a high degree of diligence on whoever they're gonna be working with to help them sell. There is practically no barrier to entry into the profession of business broker in most jurisdictions around the world. And so people get attracted to the industry because the commission rates seem high in comparison to things like being a real estate agent. Mm. And so I've run into a lot of really awful business brokers who are giving people bad advice. In fact, I use the term qualified business broker because I, I don't like to use the blanket term anymore. I, people need to do some work into looking at the person's history, what they've done, how long they've been in it. They need to talk to some of their past clients because setting the price and adequately setting the seller's expectation is the most key thing that, and that any kind of professional is going to do. The saddest thing that I run into with sellers, Andrew, is when they've had their business for sale for two years and they can't understand why they can't get it sold. They go on YouTube and they find me and then they hire me to look over the package that their broker has been using. And I ask them for some additional information and I'll say, well, the reason your business hasn't sold is that you're asking 40 or 50% too much. Mm. And do you understand that in your particular industry under these circumstances, it will never be a cash deal? This is the kind of deal you're looking at, you know, a certain amount down, maybe the buyer can borrow a certain amount from a bank. And then you're probably looking at a note with payments over three or five years very often when I have these clients and I go through this exercise, they'll say to me some variation of this. They'll say, oh, my God, a few months into trying to sell my business, somebody made an offer like that. <laughs> and they missed their chance to exit yep. because they didn't know what a reasonable offer was going to look like. Yep, and. I remember you know, back in my business broker days when I had a full-time office and I was doing this all the time, I would tell sellers, this is what a deal looks like. We hardly ever do all cash deals. You're going to end up holding paper. You're going to have to choose the right buyer. They're going to have to be qualified. And people would say, I don't like that. And they'd leave and they'd go find someone else. And they'd come back a year later when their contract expired. And they would say, I really need to sell it now. And I know that you were telling me the truth. Hmm. That's kind of for sellers. Yep. For buyers, my biggest piece of advice is you need to know something about the industry you're looking at. And if something looks like a really good deal in an industry and you don't know about that industry, you should be asking yourself, why isn't somebody else in this industry picking up this company? Right? Mm -hmm. There's something the insiders know that is making this deal look unpalatable. And Even the smallest businesses, you know, I've had civil servants, middle managers at banks, different people come and look at things like fast food restaurants and pizzerias and stuff like this. And I'll say to them, like, have you ever worked in a business like this? No. And I'll say, well, why don't you go work at McDonald's? You know, if you're willing to work Saturday night, they'll hire you because teenagers don't want to work on Saturday night either.
1: Yeah. and good Good opportunity.
0: You know, you can get in there see what it's really like, see what that kind of business is like, what the environment's like, what the customers are like, what the staff issues are like, right? And then you can know if you really want to own this business. And <laughs> you think many people would have done that? Of course not. No, no, right? They look at the numbers and you know, people who are going to invest in a certain business should have some idea of how that business works and what it's like to be in it.
1: I can't remember the the name of this movie, but it was Robert Redford was the star of it. And he basically went in, he was going to be the new, the new prison warden of a prison in Ohio. And what they did is nobody knew this, just him and the governor of Ohio. And he went in as a prisoner and he spent three months in the jail, you know, a month and a half until there was a situation, you know, really drastic situation. And Basically he, you know, was in the middle of the situation and he looked at the guard and he says, call the governor. (laughs) And at that moment, everything flipped and all of a sudden he knew all the bad stuff that was going on in there. And and it was just, it was a great movie. It was a great kind of turnaround movie. All right. So let me ask you last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months
0: for me personally? Yeah. Yeah. It's to get another 10,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel because my mission, what drives me in my business today is to help people avoid dumb business deals. And basically the problem is ignorance. Mm. And I can solve that just by creating awareness and and teaching people. So so my big goal is to continue to spread that message so that, you know, I've got hundreds of videos on Mm. my channel about buying and selling businesses. It's all there for people to consume. There's no cost or anything. And so you know, I want people to come and learn from this stuff so that they avoid these bad mistakes. And if you find a deal that looks like it's the good, a good deal and it's the right deal for you, then maybe you want to get me to help look at it as well. Because there's, uh, you know, you see things through your career that are amazing. And then amazingly, a year or two later, you see it again. Yep. And so someone who looks at this stuff all the time is going to be able to spot things that you know, even the best CPA in your town isn't going to spot because they don't look at these deals all the time in the same way.
1: Beautiful. All right. And listeners, there you have it. Now, that wasn't a story of loss. That was a discussion about how to avoid loss. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, to reduce risk in your life. I mean, that's what the whole podcast is about. So go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and download the risk reduction checklist and see how you measure up. As we conclude, David, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning (laughs) your fantastic experience into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: Just business is risky. It's still worth pursuing. (laughs) You you know, do what you can to avoid the losses. And I think that's what's great about your show.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, that's a wrap on another great story to help you create, grow, and most importantly, protect your well-fellow risk-takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying I'll see you on the upside."